evidence and answers. What does this word rapture really mean? I can't find it in the scriptures. Does the Bible speak about this? And what are we to believe? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucaran. Pat is an international teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In today's broadcast, Pat is interviewing pastor, author, and Christian apologist, Dr. Mark Hitchcock, as they discuss this event known to Christians as the rapture. Now to discuss this question of can we believe in the rapture is our host, Pat Zucran. And God promised to give them a land, and he gave them the perimeters of that land, or the, the boundaries of that land, and said, I'm going to give this land to you and your descendants forever. And uh, we believe that when he promised that to Abraham and his descendants, he means his literal descendants. It's repeated that promise is to Isaac. It's repeated ultimately to Jacob and to the 12 tribes of Israel. So we believe that God has promised to give a specific land to a specific people. And to come later and kind of shoehorn the church back into the promises to Abraham, I believe is changing the meaning of those promises to Abraham. Uh, God made promises to David. He made a promise to David that one of David's descendants would sit on David's throne and rule over David's kingdom forever. Now, we all agree that that greater descendant of David is the Lord Jesus, but other people will say, well, the kingdom that Jesus is ruling over now is the church. But God told David he's going to rule, sit on your throne, David, the Davidic throne, and he's going to rule over your kingdom. David's kingdom was Israel. So I think to expand that and to say, well, no, now the kingdom is the church, is changing the meaning of the promise that God gave to David. And so I think we have to be careful that we're not changing the meaning of the promises God made to Abraham, God made to David, and to others. Yeah, now, Mark, some will say, well, when Israel rejected the Messiah, the deal's off. Right. Yeah, how, how do you answer that? Well, I mean, you still have the promises repeated even after that period of time. You know, in, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is stating to his disciples, you know, that uh, um, teaching them all about the kingdom of God. It says for 40 days, Jesus was teaching them about the kingdom of God. And at the end of that time period, the disciples asked Jesus, Jesus, is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons, which the Father's fixed by his own authority, but you'll be my witnesses and so on. Well, in other words, they're saying, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? Because that's what they believed. Jesus had been teaching them about the kingdom for 40 days. They believed the kingdom would be restored to Israel. And they said, is it this time you're going to do that? And that would have been the perfect place for Jesus to have corrected their wrong theology and said, look, there isn't going to be a kingdom for Israel. But he doesn't say that. He says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. So Jesus there leaves in place this idea that the kingdom is going to be restored to Israel. You have, you know, statements in where Jesus tells the 12 apostles, his 12 apostles, you're going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, to me, the only way they could have understood that was, we're going to sit on 12 literal thrones on the earth judging over uh, the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus reiterates these promises himself later on. You know, I think, again, we have warrant, even in the New Testament, for taking these promises literally that were made in the Old Testament. Yes, yeah, so I think also another hallmark of dispensationalism has been the literal interpretation of the Bible, uh, not only from Genesis, but I think consistently all the way through the book of Revelation. 
Well, that's right. If you start off, you know, taking the Bible literally in Genesis and say we have a literal man and a woman in a literal garden, then to me when you come to the end of the book of Revelation, we have a literal city there uh, that's kind of pictured like the Garden of Eden. The history ends in kind of this temple city, if you will, the, the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. So if you want to take the beginning of Genesis literally, you have to take the end of Revelation literally as well. I think it all holds together with this same method of interpretation. I think to me, you make the the Bible, it makes sense, and you have the Bible as a complete story that way. Yes. Now, Mark, why has there been such a controversy over this theology of dispensationalism? I know when I'm on the golf course or something with, you know, my brothers in Christ, and they find out I, I went to Dallas or... I hold to this view of dispensationalism. Man, I get a pretty strong reaction, you know, like it's a heretical or something. Why is there such a strong yeah. reaction among some, you know, against dispensationalism? Well, I mean, you know, I can't speak for everybody who doesn't like it, but I think some of the I think some of it is people don't understand it. Yeah, I um, think so. I think, you know, there's a lot of times when people hear a w- certain word and that word has been kind of infused with a lot of meaning and so when someone, you know, says to me, well, I don't, you know, I'm not a dispensationalist or I don't like dispensationalism, I always ask them, well, what do you understand dispensationalism to mean? Because I think sometimes they don't even know what it is. You know, it's just something they've, they've heard about. So that's a first thing I think to consider. One thing is some people believe that dispensationalists teach that people are saved different ways throughout history. You know, the dispensationalists teach that, you know, salvation was by works in the Old Testament, and now it's by grace through faith, and so there's different means of salvation. That's not what dispensationalists believe. We believe that people have always been saved by God's grace through faith and the promises of God. So some believe that. Others think, too, that we chop the Bible up, you know, into, into pieces. You've got all these different dispensations, and, you know, it's kind of chopping the Bible up into pieces. What's interesting, if you read Calvin's Institutes, Calvin talks about the old dispensation or the dispensation of law and talks about, you know, now is this dispensation of grace. So, you know, dispensationalists aren't the only ones who use those terms. Obviously, whether someone's a dispensationalist or not, they're going to agree that before Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, things were different than they are now. We wear clothes now, you know, and we eat pork and different kinds of food. So, yeah, if you just look at things practically, we live differently than people did at other times. So in some senses, people are recognizing by that that there's been a change. But again, going back to the main thought of dispensationalists, all we're saying is, is that there's a distinction between Israel and the church. I think, you know, a lot of people, too, a lot of anti-dispensationalist ideas have almost come out of an anti-Semitism as well. You know, they think Uh the Jewish people killed the Messiah, God's finished with them, you know, they're going to be punished now forever because of that, and, you know, that God has no future for them. So I think that uh, it comes out of a lot of wrong ideas, I think, but I think I believe if you take the Bible consistently, literally, that a dispensationalist approach is where you're going to end up. Right. Now, Mark, many say that the literal interpretation of Revelation is a recent trend in the church. Or, you know, it's, hope people don't get too confused, we're throwing out a lot of terms here, but the futurist or premillennial interpretation, literal interpretation of Revelation, of a literal 144,000, of a third of the seas turning to blood, stars falling from the sky, all of that. It, it's a recent trend. It wasn't interpreted that way in church history. It's just a recent trend. Is that correct? 
No, it's not, actually. I mean, you go back and read some of the earliest writers. You know, again, I mentioned a man named Irenaeus. Or Irenaeus. I mean, he lived in the second century, so around 180, 160 to 180 A.D., so you know, 60 or 80 years after the book of Revelation was written. And if you go and read Irenaeus, Irenaeus sounds like a modern dispensational prophecy teacher. Yeah. Um, he believed in a future literal Antichrist. He believed he would reign, uh, rule the earth for three and a half years. He believed a temple would re- be rebuilt in the city of Jerusalem. Um, he believed in a, a time of tribulation that was coming on the earth, a literal second coming of Jesus, followed by a 1,000-year literal reign of Jesus on the earth. That's what you can go read in book five of the writings of Irenaeus and, and his book Against Heresies. That's what he says. I mean, that's what I believe. So, again, just because Irenaeus said this doesn't make it true, but it does mean that it's not new. Right. Also, we have the writings of references to the writings of Papias, who actually was a disciple of the Apostle John. And Papias believed in a literal thousand-year reign of Jesus on the earth after he returned. So, again, just because Papias holds that doesn't mean it's correct, but he was a disciple of John. He met with John and studied with John. So you would think that Papias would have understood what John taught about the millennium and things like that. So, again, it's not true that in the early church you know, they, they took all of this symbolically. I mean, I think actually the opposite is true. Now, you know, it's not like people all just understood it all in one way, but certainly a lot of the main teachers in the early church held to a literal interpretation of the book of Revelation, a futurist view of the things that were prophesied there. Right. You mentioned several in your book here. Uh, that were featuring Can We Still Believe in the Bible, Justin Martyr, one of the earliest defenders of the faith. Also, was it the Didache? We don't know who wrote that. And the Shepherd of Hermas and right. uh, Hippolytus and others seem to interpret Revelation literally with an Antichrist or a thousand-year millennial rule. And so there seems to be a lot of early writers who interpreted Revelation literally. No, that's right. No, that's that's a, a correct statement to make. And uh, yeah, again, you know, people say, well, that doesn't prove that it's, you know, that that's the way to understand it. But at least it's an argument against the fact that what a lot of us hold is, you know, something that's new. Now, dispensationalism and pre-trib rapture and some of those things were not mentioned in the early church per se. So that's, you know, it's a fair. We want to be fair in what we say, but to, to say that people took the prophecies of Revelation futuristically from their day and saw literal Antichrist and saw a lot of these things, that's a correct statement to make. But they did believe in the early church, if you read in many of the, the writings, they did believe in a uh, an imminent return of Christ, that is, that he could come at any moment. And that is consistent with the pre-trib rapture, you know, what we teach, that Jesus could come back at any time. So they did teach that. Now, they didn't have a, an elaborate, well-thought-out system of pre-tribulation rapture uh, in the earliest church, but they did believe that he could come back at any moment. Yeah, so it seems to me, uh, in my brief study of interpretation, many of the early church fathers interpreted Revelation literally, or a futurist yes. view, and then right. they move allegorical as you know, Christianity conquers the Roman Empire, and think suddenly, you know, the emperor is not the Antichrist, and Christianity seems to be victorious, and they seem to go allegorical with Origen, great church father there, and then with when Augustine comes along, especially, the allegorical or maybe idealist kind of uh, theology seems to rise at that point. 
Do you see that trend in church history? Yeah. No, that's right. That's what happened. And then, of course, then you go into the period uh, when, you know, the Roman Catholic Church begins to come to dominance, you know, like 1,000, right. you know, 900 or 1,000 A.D. And of course, you know, you have a, many, many people in the world who are illiterate. You know, people don't even have Bibles, you know, and if they have them, they couldn't read them anyway. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you just believed what people told you. But when you get through 16th century, 17th century, uh, with the printing press, with mm-hmm. rising levels of literacy, that's when the idea of a literal millennium and taking these prophecies more literally about Israel, that's when that begins to come back to ascendancy, or yeah. begins to rise again at that period of time. It seems like with the Reformation Church Fathers, they shift more literal and go to kind of the historicist approach, and it seems to be more literal than the idealist. And then as it Reformation continues, you know, then the more literal interpretation of Revelation seems to come back. So it seems like we've made a full circle, actually. That's true. I think that's a good statement to make. Yeah, it's kind of come back around. And of course, you know, many people today, many, many people just don't even care about the book of Revelation. That's, you know, that's tragic. But those who do, there's a lot of idealism out there. I would say historicism is not a large view. I'd say most people are either preterists they're idealists or they're futurists, really, in the book of Revelation today. But, you know, I think as as more and more people think about it and study it and try to really be honest with the text and be consistently literal, futurism is still a very viable view today. And uh, I think one that, you know, that the listeners should really, you know, take into consideration. It's the one that I think best accounts for all the material in the book. Yes. Now, when it comes to the rapture, you know, one of the criticisms we hear is, well, the word is not in the Bible. We don't see the word rapture in the Bible. So where does this word rapture come from? Well, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 17, uh, you have the word that's used there is harpazo in the Greek. It means to be snatched or to be caught up. You know, that we who are alive will be caught up together in the clouds, you know, to meet the Lord in the air. Well, that word harpazo occurs, I think it's 14 times in the New Testament. And uh, that's one of the places it occurs. But in the, the the Bible was written, you know, the New Testament was written in Greek to begin with. Later on, a man came along named Jerome, and he translated the New Testament from Greek into Latin that the people could read in that day. And the word that Jerome used to translate the Greek word harpazo was the word rapio, which becomes the, the idea of the rapture of the church. So it comes from the Latin word that's used there. So a lot of people say, well, the word rapture is not even in the Bible. Well, the word harpazo is in the Greek, and then in the Vulgate, we get the word rapture from the, the word that was used there, and that came over into the English. So, you know, if people don't want to call it the rapture of the church, they can call it the catching away of the church, or the harpazo of the church, or, you know, whatever words you want to use for it. But the doctrine or the idea of the rapture is clearly there in passages like, First Thessalonians chapter four verse seventeen, also in First Corinthians chapter fifteen verses fifty one and fifty two. So the idea of a catching away or a group of people leaving this earth without tasting death is clearly presented in the New Testament. Now, as you state in your book, the rapture of the church is not the first time something like the rapture occurs. There are several events in the Bible, Old and New Testament, where people are actually taken out of the world. That's right. You go all the way back to the Old Testament. I mean, you look at Enoch. You know, Enoch was, you know, it says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So Enoch got raptured to heaven. You know, it's in Genesis chapter 5 and verse 24. 
Um, Elijah was caught up in a fiery chariot. You know, he was caught up to, to go to heaven to be with God. So these were individuals who were caught up and raptured. You know, even the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 says that he was caught up to paradise. And he uses the word actually harpazo, that word that's translated rapture. So Paul got caught up to heaven. Now, he, he went up and came back down, but he still was caught up there. So uh, there are several raptures in the Bible uh, that are spoken of. So the rapture of the church at the end of this age will be unique in the fact that many, many people will go in this event, not just one. But the concept of a rapture has already been seen throughout Scripture where people go to heaven without dying. And that's what we mean by the rapture. There's going to be an entire generation of believers who are going to do an end run on the grave. We won't die. Um, you know, in 1 Corinthians it says that we shall not all sleep. In other words, not everybody will die. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. So in the moment time it takes to blink your eye, a generation of people are going to not sleep. They're not going to die, but they're going to be transformed or changed and, and go immediately to heaven to be with the Lord. And so the idea of the rapture is a biblical doctrine. It's taught many places in the New Testament. Now, there are some who argue who say, well, the word rapture doesn't appear in the writings of the church fathers, you know, the early church fathers. That's a very late development. What do you have to say to that? Yeah, that's one of the most common arguments that's used all the time. And the book that Ed Heinsohn and I have written called Can We Still Believe in the Rapture? I think that's one of the most important things that we contribute in this book. And a lot of the information, again, in, uh, for disclosure, we got from a man named William Watson. And uh, William Watson has done some incredible work about going back in church history, finding rapture statements early on in church history and throughout church history that are powerful. You know, People always say, well, the pre-trib rapture didn't come about till the 1830s, you know, with J.N. Darby. And that statement simply is false. And I can say that there's an overwhelming amount of evidence back in church history, starting back in the 4th century A.D. We have statements from 1300 A.D., many, many statements in the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries about statements about the rapture, even using statements like people being left behind. You know, people think the left behind series, you know, with Tim LaHaye is new. They even actually use the language of people being left behind. So we're not going to have time in this interview to go through all of the information, but we have a whole chapter called History of the Rapture Doctrine. And I would encourage people that don't even agree with pre-trib rapture to get the book that we've written and to read that chapter, because for people to continue to say that this doctrine came about in the 1830s with Jay and Darby simply is a factually inaccurate statement, and people need to stop making that statement. Again, you can disagree with pre-trib rapture if you want to. What I ask people is at least be fair, and let's not use arguments that are incorrect. Right. Now, some people also, I think, the church fathers were developing other doctrines that they had to defend, so they weren't able to do a full-scale theology of the end times eschatology I think early on the battle was Christology, battling Arius and the nature of Christ. And then you had the debate on the Trinity and then the debate on, you know, the books of the Bible, which one belong in the Bible. And then with mm -hmm. the Reformation, you had the battle over what is the gospel, what is the salvation message. So the debate on and full development of eschatology really doesn't happen till maybe modern times. Is that right? Well, that's right. I mean, not, the way I like to say it is, you know, back then they had they had bigger fish to fry. I mean, in many ways, yeah, you're talking about the person of Jesus and, and all kinds of 
aberrant doctrines they were going against. But what I would really say about about dispensationalists, about myself, is really in some ways we are that we are continuing to reform, you know, the doctrines that were lost. And so I think in some ways we're more reformed than people who claim to be reformed because what we would say is, look, eschatology and all of the work of Luther, Calvin, you know, Zwingli, and the others who were there, they never got around really to reforming the eschatology of the Catholic Church, um, which I think was taken about through Augustine and Tychonius and others who took this more allegorical type approach that in the, again, the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, people began to come back around to the idea that Israel means Israel. These prophecies are literal, and they're really going to be fulfilled in the future. So I would say that eschatology didn't really get reformed until the 1700s and 1800s, and is still continuing to be fully developed today. Yes. Now, when it comes to those who believe in the rapture, there are three views as to when the rapture will take place. So right now we're in the church age, and then the church age will end when we go into a period of seven years tribulation where God's wrath is unleashed upon the church. And somewhere in there is the time of the rapture. Now, what are the three views as to when the rapture will take place? Well, there's three different views, and it's spoken of in relation to the coming time of tribulation. There's the pre-trib rapture view that says Christ will come and catch his saints to heaven pre or before the seven-year tribulation period that's coming. The mid-trib view says that he will come back at the middle of that period of time. And the post-trib view, as you can imagine, says he'll come back right at the end. So post-tribulationists believe that what will happen, Jesus will be coming back at his second coming, which we all believe in that, a return of Christ to the earth. That believers will be caught up to meet Jesus in the air, that will make a U-turn and come right back down to the earth with him. So they would say that the second coming and the rapture occur basically at the same time. So it's kind of, it's one event that happens basically in one phase. So those are the three main views, the pre-trib, the mid-trib, and the post-trib. And this is, again, we're talking about here, again, the timing of the rapture. Right. Now, they're good Christians that hold to all three views. And you can read about all three in Marx and uh, Ed Heinsohn's great book here, Can We Still Believe in the Rapture? But... Mark, uh, you hold to a pre-tribulation rapture position. Yeah, give us some reasons why you think the rapture will occur before the tribulation occurs. Well, we've got a lot of chapters. We go into detail explaining our view. And what we've tried to do in this book is a couple of things. One is we've tried to interact with the best of scholars who hold the other views. You know, we don't want to use straw man arguments or, you know, kind of the weakest arguments. We want to use really up-to-date you know, scholarly people who hold these other views. And we've also tried in the book to have a really good tone. You know, we're not mad at people who are mid-trib or post-trib. We don't think they're stupid or, you know, or that they have bad motives. It's just a difference of opinion. So we try to go through and just point out and and say, we want to give a measured, reasoned case for our view that people can read and then they can make up their own mind. But one of the reasons we give is the doctrine of imminency. And by imminency, we mean that Christ could come back at any moment. And again, we give a lot of scriptures that, that we think support the idea that Jesus could come back at any time. Now, think about this. If Jesus can come back at any moment, then the mid-trib or post-trib views cannot be correct, because we're not even in the tribulation yet. So if the tribulation hasn't started yet, obviously Jesus can't come back today, because mid-tribbers would say we can't come back to the middle of that time, or post-tribbers would say he can't come back to the end of that time. 
So if you really believe Jesus could come back at any moment, you have to be pre-trib because, you know, again, we're not even in the tribulation period yet. And so that's an important argument, I think. You know, only a pre-trib person can really wake up in the morning and say, perhaps today, you know, today might be the day that Jesus will come. So it's this idea of eminency that seems to be presented in the New Testament. It just seems to be presented in many places, many verses, as something that could happen at any moment because it's presented as something we're to be looking for. And again, why be looking for something if it's years away? We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold a conference, give him a call. That number locally in Hawaii is 4830586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online on the homepage. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucrand.